I'm with Peter Levine. Hi, Peter. Hi. So, in your new uh, upcoming book, you talk about a very dramatic incident. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Sure, sure, gladly. Um, this is something that happened about five years ago. And I was uh, walking out of my house. It was uh, one of those beautiful uh, Southern California mornings. It was kind of a morning where nothing could go wrong except something terribly did go wrong. I was walking to the restaurant uh, and uh, crossing the street, and a teenager ran through the stop sign through the crosswalk, and she hit me at about 20, 25 miles an hour. And I was thrown up in the air and uh, landed on the rock, or on the on the on the road. And I, at that moment, I was I didn't know where I was. I was disoriented. And uh, then, from my helpless perspective, a bunch of people came towards me, and they looked felt like a flock of carnivorous ravens swooping down on injured prey. Mm. And uh, slowly, I oriented myself to identify the real attacker. And you know, almost like that, these, these uh, a flash, these flashbulb pictures, black and white pictures. Uh, I saw a beige car over me with its teeth-like grill and a shattered windshield. Mm-hmm. And a wide-eyed teenager burst out and. I, again, I couldn't put what had happened. I didn't, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend what had happened, and everything seemed to be in fragments. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then a man rushed down, and he said, "I'm a, I'm a, uh, an off-duty paramedic," and he commanded me, loudly commanded me, "Don't move your head." And I tried to follow his order. But at the same time, my natural instinct was to orient to where the voice was coming from. Yeah. So, um, so that 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 put me back in this in this in this state of, of paralysis. And thankfully, thankfully, uh, a woman a few minutes later came by and she she announced herself as a uh, a doctor, a pediatrician. And asked if there was anything that she could do, and I said, "Yes, please just sit here, just sit by me." And she took her hand and, and held my hand. And this contact, the physical holding of hands and the sound of her voice, were very important in helping me stabilize enough and orient to do what I needed to do next, which I'll I'll describe to you. Mm-hmm. Something that 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 therapists, of course, need to do with their with their traumatized and upset, agitated clients, they have to create in a in a in a direct somatic way through through voice, through touch. Uh, voice is sometimes called prosody. It's the way a mother talks to her her infant, for example, that kind of rhythmical uh, rhythmical expression, and. Um, so anyhow, and also the, the physical touch, being being able to hold her hand. Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've worked with trauma, you know, for over 40 years, and to have it, it 
it becomes so clear why we do some of the things that we do. So in a way, what, what, that, uh, what that experience was about is for 40 years you've known it, but uh, this was your experience of it while in the, in the thick of it and not uh, in the place of knowledge, but in the place of being traumatized. Potentially being traumatized. I was yeah. in a direct experience. I was experiencing you know, what I had written about and taught for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Of course, I did work on my own traumas, but there's something different when you're right in the middle of it. I mean, and, and, and you really are in a life or death situation. Yeah. So anyhow, uh, uh, when uh, this woman, you know, we, we, we made contact, I was able to to go into my body and to be able to feel the extreme level of arousal and through the kind of somatic tracking which I describe in you know in, in my books and um, I was able to to c- come out of the state of hyper arousal and dissociation mm-hmm. able to to return to my body and as part of that uh, I, I would would experience some of the things that my body had done to protect myself, to defend myself. I mean, you can't defend yourself from being from a car coming to hit you. But I did because I had actually had just put my hands out enough so that my head did not hit against the windshield. Mm-hmm. And then when I was thrown out into the road, I felt my other hand extending and uh, and protecting my head from being being impacting the road. So. But I and actually experienced, because when I was laying in a heap on the road, I felt completely helpless, completely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And that's the essence of the traumatic state. And that's how the traumatic state is registered in the body. Right. You were feeling helpless, and uh, actually, as you were able to, where you were uh, calming down, uh, you were able to notice, actually, you hadn't been as helpless as you thought, and you had some movements that were protecting yourself. Exactly, and that's what happens with traumatized people. When we're traumatized, that is to say, we are overwhelmed and experience ourselves as defenseless. But it's not true. Everybody has internal defenses, body defenses that began to be executed, but they were overwhelmed, but they're still there. They're, they're like they're latently held in the body waiting for the possibility to complete itself in meaningful action. So for example, a person who is raped, um, they're, they're held down. Or a person who has a, a child that has a surgery and they used to do uh, this, uh, tonsillectomies with ether. And the, the nurses and doctors would be holding them down while they would put the mask over the children, which absolutely terrified them. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle. They try to, to, you know, to escape. But then they were completely overwhelmed by the rape, by, uh, by the ether, um, by, you know, by being hit by a car. So all of these things have the effect of creating a sense of, of, of helplessness and, yeah. and hyper-arousal. So when I work with people, and maybe this would be a, the time to go back to kind of flashback 36 
Actually, I, I wanted to ask just to make a point. When you were describing the, um, you know, the the accident that happened fairly recently, um, you had I used the word traumatized, and you responded by saying potentially traumatized. And maybe that's a good point to make: is how the same thing that can traumatize some people with that intervention, with the thing that happened, with your knowledge, with that human intervention, uh, you were able to actually not be traumatized. Yes, actually, and, and afterwards, um, you know, numbers of my friends, several of my friends had commented to saying to me that, uh, that I seem more centered and more alive. And I think that that was true. And, and that is a very good point that you asked, that, because a trauma is, of course, I mean, when something really horrible happens, we have the possibility of being traumatized. But if we meet it in a certain way, either at the actual time, as in this case, or uh, even even years or decades later, we we really uh, reclaim our aliveness and our empowerment in a way which we may not have known had we not been traumatized and not transformed the trauma. Mm-hmm. So, so in a way, um, you know, as a, I see it as a very personal, touching um, comment on your life's work. That in a way, you're dealing with trauma, and you've also created a foundation for human enrichment. And in a way, how much enrichment can come out of overcoming trauma? Yes, yeah, so, so thank you. That was the idea of, of naming the organization in that way. That that that, that the, 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 the the trauma is a fact of life. However, trauma doesn't have to be a life sentence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, as in the, the biblical story of Jonah, you know, the, unnorth- the unknown, uh, not unknowable forces of trauma and loss can swallow us whole. You know, entrapped in loss, we, we become hopelessly frozen. But even then, there is always some way that the, the body... Is, is, is you know connects with its deep resource with the with the deep body self. Let me just skip briefly to a woman that I worked with mm-hmm. who was on the uh, on, I think it was the 80th floor of the World Trade Center in uh, uh, on uh, September 11th, 2001, and um, after this uh, she. You know, she couldn't sleep. She awoke screaming. She had lost all uh, engagement with life. She used to love music. Now she couldn't stand to listen to music. And actually, she uh, she had uh, seen an interview I did on uh, on uh, television uh, in New York. And she, of course, she wouldn't go into an airplane, but she came three days and nights by a train to do the session with me. Uh, anyhow, uh, when we begin the session. She talks really almost as though it were happening to somebody else or talking in a, in a cocktail party about the horror of being in the building, but in a completely neutral way. And you could see that it was from her shot, from her shutdown. Mm-hmm. While she was, while she was telling the story, I noticed momentarily her hands made a, an opening gesture, her hands and her arms a little bit made an opening gesture. And I said, the woman, I said, Sharon, just for now, we can, we, we can go back to the story, but just for now, I'd just like you to notice what 
what's going on with your hands and what does it feel like if you actually put your awareness in your physical your in your your awareness into the physical sensations of your hands the way they're they're open the way they're reaching and then boom all of a sudden she said oh I see an image of the Hudson River hmm. she would go across the Hudson River uh, you know every day to work as she lived in, in New Jersey and she's seeing the river and how beautiful the river it is and seeing the boats going down the river and she said you can you can destroy a building but you can't stop the river so what she was saying was that she was connecting to her own life force yeah and when I had her be able to really feel that in her body then we had a place to go from if I had just started to go right into her trauma we would have been swallowed up, as, as, I, as I just said, you know, like in the, in, the, in the belly of the whale. Right. But so what happened is, as she was talking, you were noticing that she was talking in a way that was not connecting to the emotions of it. But you noticed, you know, you were tracking, you were observing the movement of her hands. And then uh, by pointing something out about that, helped her connect to something in the movement of her hand that brought her to that place that was a larger container, something that was more um, peaceful, something that saw more than the existence of trauma or danger. And in a way, you've hit on a key word here, uh, Serge. Yeah. And that's that's the, the, the word container. And the body is the container for all of our sensations and our feelings. And the trouble with trauma is not so much the trauma, but that our container is... Is, 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 is shrunk in relationship to it. Mm. And so one of the things that we do in somatic experiencing is we really work with the person to widen that container. Um, and, and, and again, that's when, when a person has, is able to do that, they start feeling they, they start getting some sense of safety because when, you, when you're traumatized, nothing feels safe anymore. Mm-hmm. Gradually, when people connect to these little pieces of experience in their body, uh, I call them islands of safety, and you're in this, this stormy sea of trauma, but the person finds one island like this woman did with her hand gestures. And then as we go on, then another one. And with me, it was my hands protecting my head, showing me that I, or not showing me, proving to me mm-hmm. I had power, that I hadn't lost all my power, that I wasn't helpless. And so when people put these islands of safety together, you get a little one here, a little one here, all of a sudden you get a bigger island of safety and you're able to really confront the, the, the raging, storming seas of trauma by not being overwhelmed. See, the problem in many of the older treatments of trauma and actually some of the treatments of trauma that are that are going on that are still you know still used the person is really made to relive the trauma or remember the worst part of their trauma and abreact it and uh, I mean I, I don't doubt that it benefits some people but many many other people are completely overwhelmed by that and it, it, it's not necessary right the key again is to build uh, you know if you think about the self or the body self you can think of the the self to trauma ratio if if the trauma is very large then you have to help contain 
that trauma with a with a with a larger self, with a greater body self. Right. So what you you had the, when we were talking about container, you're saying the trauma is something that you know can be or the the threat or the danger or the stress is so big that actually it's bigger than the container. And so the point is, if you throw the person back into it, you still don't have the container, and you have to really build the container so that there is room for that stress, that danger, that threat. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then the person is able to find themselves again. Mm-hmm. So, so anyhow, um, let, let me go back and give you another specific example of how I really started in this whole field, this whole area. Yeah. And this is something that happened about, about 40 years ago. And I was, um, at that time, I, I was hanging out at Esalen, and I was developing a series of, of uh, body of, of mind-body healing, of the body awareness as a way to cultivate deep relaxation. And uh, I had been working, I'd been doing my doctoral work in, in medical biophysics at UC Berkeley, and I took a leave of absence and spent uh, several months um, at Esalen, um, really meet, be, meeting people and, and, and learning about these these, these different uh, sensory kinds of um, sensory awareness systems and body therapy systems. Uh, Fitz Pearls was there, Ida Rawls, uh, uh, Will Schutt, it was, um, and Abraham Maslow was there. Um, it was really quite an, an exciting mm-hmm. place. I was, it, was, it was more fun than, than plodding along on my doctorate. <laughs> so, anyhow, when I got back to Berkeley, where I was living at the time, this friend of mine, colleague, uh, he is a psychiatrist, and he, uh, he worked with um, uh, this woman uh, named Nancy, or that, that I call Nancy, and she had been referred to him by some internists, and she had a whole panoply of uh, somatic symptoms. She had severe migraines, a PMS, uh, what would be called fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue now. Uh, and she had an extreme panic anxiety disorder, and she so severe that she was not able to really leave the house, uh, except if she was accompanied by her husband. And so... He reasoned, the psychiatrist reasoned, and he tried some medication with her with very limited results. So he asked me if I would see her to do some of my uh, my body-oriented relaxation work with her. And so uh, I uh, she came in and she was with her husband and and she was uh, terrified. Her pulse was about a hundred beats a minute. I could you know see that on her carotid artery and um, the carotid pulse. And her husband, you could see, was just utterly burdened with having her being so completely dependent on him. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, uh, I tried to, you know, uh, be as reassuring as I could to both of them. and invited her to come in to the room. And I started uh, uh, doing the uh, relaxation on the, uh, on the neck and jaw. And as I did this, I could see her heart rate was dropping. It was going from, you know, for about 100 down to 80 or 90, 80, and 75, and I was, you know, I was like pretty pleased with myself. Mm-hmm. 
but not for long. And and just as it had gone down, it shot up even quickly, more quickly. Mm. And the rate went up to about 140 beats a minute. And I say, I said, I was, you know, I, mean, I was like uh, uh, pretty, you know, a little bit uh, more than anxious, a little more than a little bit anxious myself. And I said awkwardly about the stupidest thing you could say, which was, Nancy, just relax. You just need to relax. Mm. But her heart rate started to go down, and I, you know, I think, oh, okay, well, we're back, we're back in the game again. But it went down and down and down to a very low rate of about 50 beats per minute. And, uh, she, and she was pale. She was like a ghost. And she, 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 uh, and she could barely speak. Her throat was constricted, and she, in that, in that constricted voice, she said, "Doctor, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. Don't let me die. Don't let me die." And then, at that moment, uh, in my own near panic, I saw an image of a tiger in the. The, at the end, at the far end of the of the room, mm-hmm. and I commanded to her without knowing really why at the moment. I mean, this was something obviously that this situation brought out in my own unconscious, my yeah. own archetypal unconscious. And I said, Nancy, there's a tiger. There's a tiger chasing you. Run, climb those red rocks and escape. And to both of our amazement. Her legs started shaking and trembling, but it was also uh, uh, moving as though it were running. Uh. And I could tell from her from her fingers uh, that and her, and that she would that they would become icy cold, and then she would experience tremendous heat. And these waves, with shaking and trembling and the running movements and and changes in the autonomic nervous system, i.e., heart rate, uh, temperature. That went on for a better part of an hour, maybe about 40 minutes. And at the end, she looked up and she said, she said, I feel held in tingling waves of warmth. Mm. And, I, and then she said, do you know, do, do you want me to tell you what happened? And I said, yeah, actually. She said, when you gave me that command, I at first I felt I couldn't run; it wouldn't be possible. But you're enc- it encouraged me enough that I started to run, and then I could really feel myself run, and I could feel the power in my legs, and I could feel myself climbing the rocks. Mm. And when I got on top, I had a picture of when I was uh, four years old. I had a tonsillectomy, an ether tonsillectomy, and uh, I was held down. She said she was held down by doctors and nurses while they forced the ether mask over her mouth. And her body, just like my body tried to protect itself from the, from the car and from the road, her body had tried to protect itself by fighting against the doctors. And her body was wanting to run you know, the flight response, fight and flight response, uh-huh. run and escape from that room and to run to the comfort of her parents. But, of course, she couldn't do it. 
at four years old, but she could do it at 24 years old. So yeah. she's, you know, retroactively what I did in the, in the present moment. And then, of course, I was curious about a number of things. First of all, where in the world did this image come from? And uh, then it occurred to me I had been taking a graduate seminar in the zoology department on ecology, the study of animals in their natural environment. And the professor had mentioned an arcane reference to something that was called animal hypnosis. And if animals are restrained, and particularly if they're restrained in a fearful state, they go into an immobile state where they can't move. And they stay in this shock, immobile state uh, anywhere from minutes to, you know, to 20, to 20 hours. And they stay in depending on how much, the longer the, they, the greater the fear, the longer they stay in. And when, often when people start coming out of the immobility, the, the intensity of the sensations and the preparation for self-protection in the form of rage counterattack is in itself frightening, so it puts them back in the immobility response. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, then I began, you know, a, a, a basically a lifelong research into so years into is, is it okay if I interrupt you for a moment, Peter? Uh, just uh, the story is so rich that in a way I would like to 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 stop for a moment and digest a couple of angles of it. Uh, and there is something, of course, about a lot about the trauma situation that you describe in it. But there is also something that is very uh, powerful about, um, you know, the practitioner uh, and and you, uh, your involvement in this situation. And a couple of things strike me as I hear you tell the story. I mean, first is how, um, you know, you were into the uh, uh, biomechanical, biophysics part. Yeah. yeah, tracking the uh, you know the heart rate literally with a monitor and uh, so really very but in a way uh, in a situation of very much tracking the physical uh, and at the same time uh, what was what happened at what was a transformative experience was that at the same time as you were tracking something happened to you uh, in response in resonance with what was happening to the patient to the woman. Uh, and brought on some images, and uh, it, you know, through that resonance of yours, you were able to uh, respond to her in a way that actually created her own, you know, a healing environment for her. Yes, yes, you're you're right on track there. Uh, somatic resonance is the most important tool, possibly the most important tool that any therapist can have. The ability to resonate with another person. Now, you don't pick up exactly what they're feeling, but you do pick up something like that. And particularly as therapists get to know their own inner landscape, their own felt sense, uh, then they can really relatively easily differentiate between what's their own kind of experience, what their own experience is. So, for example, I felt fear, uh, but that was my own fear. Mm-hmm. I was doing, but then when I was able to, uh, and again I was just barely developing my own body sense at that time. Uh, but when I was, when the therapist is able to resonate, and that's the key term I think, is resonate with another person, then they can really track their their sensations 
and by observing what's going on in the physiological systems. Like, I'm not, I don't have a heart rate monitor, but I can see the heart rate. I, I don't have biofeedback things on the fingers for temperature, but I can see the temperature. I can see when the face gets red. I can see when there's a modeling of red and white. I can see, of course, when the person turns, turns tail. So all of that is giving me a window into the non-voluntary, uh, instinctual part of our brains, the, the so-called reptilian uh, structures of our brain, the, the real primitive parts of our brain. And so we're able to actually dialogue with the client at that level, and that's really what it takes to help them guide, guide them through the sensations that are associated with trauma, these fragmentary sensations, and to put them together in a coherent whole so the person can return to being able to be in the here and now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that really is what guides must guide therapists, and, and it, it's something that comes uh, from practice and from trusting. Um, and uh, actually, um, you know, after I started seeing more and more clients, that's when I started to begin to people that asked me if I could train them in that. And I, quite frankly, I had no idea how I would train people because I didn't have the words for it. So I spent many years trying to get the words to describe what happened. And actually then, I, I eventually wrote my first book, Waking the Tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, as, uh, this is something that, uh, uh, I'm getting jumping around a little bit, I know. Uh, a couple of weekends ago, uh, Bethel van der Kolk and I ta- taught a class at Esalen Institute. We've been doing that every year for about 10 years. And this was a group of, of, of therapists this time who had virtually no experience with body-oriented work, with body psychotherapy or body work. And it was really lovely. And, and Bessel is probably one of the, the leading, he is the, the leading figure in, in both in, in the neuroscience of, of trauma, but in, in really getting this out to, um, you know, to, to people who are, are, are clinicians. Mm-hmm. And in this group, you know, about 65 people, I would say a good 60 people really had never known that you could do anything but talk. Mm-hmm. And to see this kind of awakening really, really tickled us both. And I, I think what we're seeing, and 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 and, and you know, and I think the USABP and the and the European Body Association have really been at the forefront of kind of collecting or or, or bringing together this collective work that really seems to have turned the corner in in, in, in psychotherapy psychotherapy in general, and it. It's really such that I, I, I think it's, it's, it, it already has turned the corner where, majority, where most therapists soon will be incorporating some aspect of body-oriented work in their, in their clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So, but anyhow, you do have to train yourself. I mean, you do have to, how you observe the other person's body. As I say, the one method is to track your sensations in relation to their sensations and their affects, your sensations and your feelings. And the other is to observe their behavior. So you see changes of heart rate. You see changes in color reflecting the autonomic nervous system. But you also see very subtle changes. Well, you see uh, facial expression changes. 
Uh, Paul Ekman has done a great amount of research on this, and this originally comes from the work of Charles Darwin Mm -hmm. in his second and at least as important book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, where he shows that, that, that emotions are innate uh, survival mechanisms that have evolved in the mammal species and is used for many different purposes, but mostly to prepare us for action. So, so, so therapists can train themselves to see these facial expressions, to see fear, to see anger, to see sadness. Now, generally, these things occur very quickly. So the person doesn't, you know, they, they don't show fear for more than or, or sorrow or, or disgust often for more than a fraction of a second. So therapists need to you know, train themselves to be able to see those expressions. And also there are postural shifts. So the very slight raising of the shoulder almost imperceptibly could indicate fear. It could be indicated, in other words, the shoulder is trying to protect the person from being hit by something. And so as a therapist, is able to bring the client's attention to those teeny movements that are underneath these postural adjustments, they again come to these, 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 these ways that the body had defended or protected them. And often they'll have memories of the trauma, as did Nancy, but that's not the operative, that's not the important thing. Uh-huh. The thing, again, is to replace the feelings of helplessness with those of, of empowerment and competency with feelings of terror and helplessness, with feelings of goodness and well-being. And all of that is registered in the body. And so so just again to slow down something that uh, uh, people who are not so familiar with your work might not notice, is uh, you're saying the important is not especially to notice the memory or to notice, uh, but actually to release uh, and escape that feeling of helplessness to come to that feeling of power and competence. That's right. In other words, if images and memories do occur, that it can be part of it. But that's not what it, that's not what the healing is about. It's not about remembering. It's more about re-remembering. In other words, bringing these 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 fragmented parts of our body experience and dissociation together in a in, in a in a coherent uh, in a coherent uh, or, uh, organism. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, the memory. Now, of course, in some cases, memory is very important, especially if there's a possibility that you know some kind of ongoing abuse is occurring. So, you know, getting getting accurate information, uh, you know, can be important in protecting other people. But by and large, the absolute details of our of our memory isn't what's important. Mm-hmm. And it's it's restoring power and discharging this incredible survival energy that we mobilize. That's why the autonomic nervous system is so hyper-aroused. It's for the fight or flight. And this is, it's, this, it's this kind of mobilization that allows a mother to pick up a car and to pull her trapped child out you know, from under the car where the child's uh, legs have, have been caught. Right. So maybe that's a transition to, we could uh, touch a little bit on um, uh, how the body is impacted by trauma. Okay. Um, well, again, when we're threatened, our bodies prepare for life-preserving action. First, we mobilize the, the fight-or-flight response. 
And again, this is this is tremendous amount of energy that's mobilized. You know, in that moment before when I was hit by the car, you know, my my uh, arousal was off the charts, and you know, my, as evidence, my heart rate was about 180. Uh-huh. And they, when they took us when I was on the road, and but being able to discharge that energy is what helped reset my 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 nervous system. You know, where is it? My eching here. There's a, a hex. I think it's it's yeah hexagram 51. Uh-huh. When a man has learned within his heart what fear and trembling mean. He is safeguarded against any terror produced by outside influences. <laughs> wow! <laughs> something. Yeah, that was written. That was written uh, both between 2000 and 2500 BC. So, four, four, four thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and that's a wallop of, of wisdom here. So. If 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 we are uh, find a way to not be overwhelmed by that, actually to channel it and to resolve it, you see, in studying ethology, it occurred to me: look, if a person uh, is uh, is robbed, say, or 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 somebody comes up and holds a knife to their throat and says, "Give me your wallet, or I'll kill you." You know, there's a possibility that that person's going to be traumatized. So if a person's raped, it's, you know, there's a possibility that they will be traumatized. Mm-hmm. Now, and the the survival responses that are evoked, the fight or flight and the freezing, the immobility response, the collapse, again, these are all survival responses. And, excuse me, get a drink of water here. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when um, when we complete these responses, you see, it's the fact that they're incomplete that causes the problem. So, you know, uh, with Nancy, she was, you know, her, her her desire to run and escape, you know, that was, you know, that was what was, you know, that was what was incomplete. Mm-hmm. And so when we complete, I'm reiterating a little bit, but when we complete these responses that were incomplete at the time that we were overwhelmed, then we go out of overwhelm into, into being, you know, into being present. What was the question you asked me? Well, it feels, you know, I was asking you about how the body is impacted by trauma, but this feels very nice as you're saying it as a very nice way to, uh, you know, in a way, encapsulate the uh, way your approach to trauma is very different from some others. Uh, it's not about, say, necessarily remembering, understanding, but uh, what you're talking about very clearly is a sense of completion of um, natural responses that the organism has in order to deal with threat and danger, and that have been blocked. That's right. And when you do this, through this bottom-up approach, right? It's like, uh, verbal psychotherapy at the top-down, higher-down mm-hmm. approach. When you do this bottom-up kind of uh, approach, then what tends to happen is spontaneously, the person will then experience certain feelings and emotions uh, associated with 
either with the event or just with coming back into life, and they will also be able to make new meanings. So, uh, you know, some people say, well, somatic experiencing doesn't work with meanings. That's not true at all. Actually, the basic core organizing uh, uh, map in somatic experiencing is called the Saiban model, sensation, image, behavior, affect, and meaning. Mm-hmm. When you work from bottom up, the person gets these new meanings. In other words, the, when you've been traumatized, we have a, a, a reified, a fixed uh, meaning, and that may be, you know, that, uh, that I don't have power over my life, or li- uh, life is dangerous, or things are dangerous, or I'll never be able to find, you know, uh, somebody to love me, and you know, all of these kinds of things that come from our from our different traumas and and and, and socialization. And when the person starts to move through the core of it, which again is in the non-voluntary parts of the nervous system, it's in this archaic primitive part of our brain that's uh, 300 million years old. Once we're able to talk to it, to dialogue with it through sensation. Then, and complete the incomplete responses and discharge the undischarged energy from the survival response or from the, from the survival responses, including fight, flight, freeze, and collapse. Then we, 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 that energy is restored to us to engage in life. So again, the container for all of this is the body. The body is intact, the body tightens, it, 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 it stiffens, it, it uh, retracts, it collapses. This is the impact of, of trauma on the body. Uh-huh. Right? But the body is also the, the, the seat of all of our good feelings, the visceral feelings of warmth and happiness, the muscles that are, that are t- uh, normally, t- uh, normally toned so that when we walk it looks like we're dancing. You know, I, I, I teach in, in many different countries, and it's always a bit of a shock to me uh, because I usually go from, from the States to Brazil and then from Brazil to, to Germany or Switzerland. Uh-huh. And um, it's such a difference of how people walk. And you, I mean, think about somebody like Nelson Mandela, even with all the trauma that he's had, and uh-huh. advancing age. You saw a man who walked with grace. Yeah. You know? And and when we're able to restore that sense of grace, which is a birthright, it's it's in our body, it's there, it's it's genetic. You know, I mean, we are wired to feel good. We are wired to want the things that are good for us. Unfortunately that gets, you know, messed up along the way. Mm-hmm. So trauma the body is both really the target of trauma, but it's also the primary resource in resolving trauma and in, uh, in, in providing to us new meanings in life. Yeah, yeah. So Peter, as we're coming to the end, um, I'm wondering if there is something that you would want to add, or actually what's coming to me in my impulse is almost to prompt you to tell the title of your upcoming book, because I think that after hearing you know, what you said, the voice, the uh, words of the title uh, acquire a deeper resonance and actually sum up very much a lot of what you've been saying. 
Okay, yes. Well, listen, let's follow your impulse. Since we're talking about following impulses. Okay. <laughs> the, the title, and it took quite a while for it to evolve, the, the, the main title is An Unspoken Voice. And actually the first chapter where I talk about my accident, the, the name of that chapter is The Power of an Unspoken Voice. Mm. So the title of the book is In an Unspoken Voice, How the Body releases trauma, and restores goodness. And I think that's a very, very powerful summary of, um, um, you know, what you've been talking about in terms of trauma and release and goodness and grace. Yeah. Thank you. And, 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 and it is about grace. And, and that's generally what people experience as they move through these, 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 ter- these previously terrifying, immobilizing states. They, they, they just reconnect with, with the sense that they're alive, that they're real, that life is something to be lived. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, to, be, to have witnessed this for 40 years, to see people go from shutdown and, and, and hyper-arousal to really being in, engaged in life and, and, and into relationships. Uh, you know, it's been a, a privilege beyond well, <laughs> beyond words. Hmm. Thanks, Peter. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.